No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. The Paro Center for Women's Enterprise is an organization that supports women entrepreneurs across Ontario. The organization's approach to supporting women is unique in that it meets women where they are, whether it's your geographic area or where you are on your business journey, Paro's programs and services are designed to support women wherever they are. This episode focuses on some of the unique programs Paro offers, like Lending Circles, but it also focuses on one of the organization's business counselors, Gitanjali Agarwal, and her own personal entrepreneurial journey in rural Ontario. Gitanjali is a name that comes from the Sanskrit language and means collection of lyrics, As the famous line goes, what's in a name? For Gitanjali, her journey has reflected her name. The self-proclaimed dream chaser has collected various experiences from the financial industry to restaurantpreneur to mother of two and now business counselor. She continues her journey as she collects experiences and shares a few words along the way. Gitanjali, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to uh, speak with you. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. So tell me about Paro. What is it and what does Paro do? So Paro in itself is a Latin word, which means I am ready. And um, that is the foundation of this entire organization. 
is to meet women where they are, how they want to be received and not categorize them, put them into what they're not. This organization is a not-for-profit organization. It started off in 1995. Our co-founder, Rosalind, is an amazing and incredible woman who had this vision to create a organization that supports women to meet women where they are. And she has built this in the last 25 plus years to be something so powerful and meaningful. It's a company that started off in the North. So in Thunder Bay area, expanded out Northeast. And finally with COVID, a blessing in disguise, um, we are now all across Ontario. So from the very tip of Windsor to the very top, Paro is available for women entrepreneurs. And so it's women entrepreneurs and do they have to be rural based or, or who, who are your um, clients? We do focus on rural communities, but that is not limited to, we don't discriminate um, based on any of that, you know, where your your location, um, your background, how you identify yourself, but it is support for women entrepreneurs specifically. And to say that, I feel like that's really powerful. Um, It's not to segregate men in any way either, but when You know, something that Roz has said that's really stuck with me over time is the fact that women, when we go to work and we create something, it's not just bringing home an income. You know, we carry so many other hats, whether it's as being a partner, a wife, um, a mother, a daughter, a daughter-in-law, a whatever. We do so much more than that. Um, The way we operate, it's not just from a mental perspective, it's from an emotional perspective. You know, we care about the people we work with, we care about the community that we build and where we're working. And our mind uh, is never narrow. You know, it's always all over the place. It's always looking after multiple things at the same time when we're doing one thing. And um, so that that's the beauty of it. And we need that support that is focused on our needs specifically. So it's not separating men from women or anything like that. It's just meeting women where they are and understanding that we have other hats to wear. So that's, uh, that's one thing that's really attached me to Paro. In terms of work, so we do support women entrepreneurship and it starts from any place of the idea phase of getting into business to startups. You know, I've started, how do I go from where I am to, you know, full-fledged being in business to women that are in business that have been in business for a year or many years. And wherever they are on their journey, our goal is to support them in, I think, three main different ways. One is through funding, because every business does need financial support. So we have different ways of doing that. We also have our workshops or what we call biz camps. And essentially what that means is for programs that we have reoccurring, um, we, we try to help qualify women into them. And we'll help you grow. You know, there's an intention behind them. So you're working with women that are like-minded in the same boat as you, and you're working with an expert that can help you get to where you want to go. So your goals are in common, your values are in common. And I think creating or harboring a community with that and working with them, the results are amazing as well. An example of a workshop um, or a few that we offer, um, one is our Jet Setter program. It's for businesses that are making around 50000 and they want to excel to a quarter million. Um, it's around 12 weeks long and um, it's it's a lot of work. It's like being in a boot camp and, you know, training every day to get there. So you can't be with women that are just in an idea phase. You know, when I say qualify into the program, you have to be with women who want to get there. That is their goal. So you can do that collectively. You're collectively working together. And then you're paired with somebody who is also, um, you know, an expert in doing that, that has helped women succeed and continuously does into meeting their goals. So we have wonderful programs like that. 
And the third part of our program is where I fit into the picture as a counselor, as a business counselor, and I meet clients and women one-on-one, whether it's virtually or in person, and um, offer them support, you know, whether it's figuring out what they're struggling with in their business, um, identifying those problems, or helping them um, access the resources we have or have built through our partnerships with other community members as well. And we can meet as little or as less frequently as we want. My goal is to be there for you, whether I'm a phone call away or a few hours in driving away. It's just to be there however you need us to show up. One of the biggest barriers that I have heard, and and, uh, last season I interviewed 39 woman-identifying, non-binary, and queer entrepreneurs across Canada, in rural Canada. And the biggest complaint is access to capital. So access to funding, access to, you know, walking into a bank and um, somebody, you're pregnant, you're an entrepreneur, you're pregnant, you have an excellent business plan. Uh, The bank manager is impressed. And then they point at your belly and say, what do we do when the baby comes? So this is the kind of attitude women face in smaller communities. How do you counsel folks through that? Hearing people out. I think, so each advisor that we have, each counselor we have, our, our working styles are different. I think that's the beauty of it. We're not, um, we're not one, you know, we're accepted for our differences. So the way I personally approach or would approach that is listening you know, um, listening to their story. I think it's important to be heard. I don't want to place you in, oh, I know how to help you or do this. I really want to just feel your pain and really understand what you went through. That's, um, it's hard, you know? And then from there with you strategize, okay, how can I actually help you? You know, what do you want me to do for you instead of projecting what I think I can do for you? And then work together with you to find the solution so you are on board with what we're doing and this is what your decision, not an influence from an outside person. And whether we continue to work together or not, or you you move on in life and you don't need my support, you have what we went through um, as a mindset, as an experience that will carry on, you know, as a teaching when you're working with somebody else. Or you can identify that, hey, I'm entering this situation again and I don't want to be there. I know how that ends. I know how this person is viewing me. I'm going to separate myself because I've learned and grown from this experience. Um, And I'm not going to put myself in that position again. That's really empowering. Something else that's exceptionally empowering that you do at Paro are lending circles. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what they are? In general, I think circles are very powerful. You know, the meaning behind them is very beautiful. And I personally look at it as creating your own tribe of women that you're that are cheerleaders, you know, supporting women in every aspect. So our circles are about four to seven uh, women and they're women led. You can choose your own circle members and or we can help you partner with with women um, and network with them. And it's not like, okay, here's seven women, you guys go form a circle, or here's four women, go form a circle. It's really meeting and seeing if you guys connect, if your values align, and that's what forms a circle. So uh, you're, you're creating your own tribe is the way I like to word it or look at it. And you will meet once a month at a bare minimum 
to, um, you know, talk about business, talk about whatever else that kind of comes up for you. And when you're in business together, I feel like that kind of support is very different. When you've dedicated and set aside time to talk about business and share and receive each other's struggles, um, that in itself is very powerful compared to just talking to a friend who may not be in business and is giving you advice based on something they don't have experience with. Another component to that is the lending. So you're not lending each other money. Um, you can apply for individual loans and grants um, and the power is that you can do it together. So you would receive indi individual funding, um, but you apply as a group, if that makes sense, where each of you can apply for funding. Uh, we have four different stages of funding. We call them microloans. Um, stage one is $1,000. Stage two is 2000 Stage three is 3000 and stage four is 5000 The first two stages have grant components. So half of that money that you're borrowing is a grant and the other half is a loan. Um, and this teaches women to A, take loans that are small, manageable, at reasonable payback periods and pay them back. It'll help them build credit, et cetera. And um, it gives them a little bit of relief as well with the first few where you're not paying the entire amount back. You know, micro grants are amazing or loans are amazing in the sense that they offer continuous support through your business um, as well. So that's sort of the intention behind the peer to peer lending circles is to offer enough support for businesses at different stages in micro amounts that they can borrow and feel comfortable paying back. Once you go through those four stages, that doesn't end. It's not like your circle dissolves. You can go back to stage three and four and continue having access to this lending and, um, you know, access support as well when it comes to mentorship and community. I like the idea of, of getting comfortable with borrowing money because yes. I think in a lot of cases, women don't want to take on debt. We don't. I, I'm speaking for myself. The conversations that I've had with other entrepreneurs is we don't want to take on debt. It's like a monkey on your back. You don't want to have to worry about that. You want to do everything on your own because we're used to doing everything on our own. And I love the idea of getting comfortable with that. It's a really exceptional example of um, women coming together in a sacred space. I love it. I, it's so unique. Yeah, I bet it, you see some incredible things. Yes, you do. And, um, you know, to add to that, what you had said in the beginning, women struggle with talking about finance. The women that I've worked with and other coaches that I meet, this is something that comes up often as a struggle is we don't want to talk about the money part of business, the lending part, the paying back the tax part of business, even though it's the most important part of business. So I think having a good relationship with finance is so important. And the program definitely does teach you that because you're not relying on each other for money in any means. We have to work together to, to apply, you know, and as we have tribes in like, you know, as a mom, you can go to classes and meet other moms that are on the same boat as you. And you kind of build friendships around that and in different areas of your life you're building a work tribe, you're building a entrepreneurship tribe, which I think is amazing, because we we work well when we're in a community that wants to support and offer support. So yeah, it is a very beautiful thing. We are known to be the largest peer-to-peer uh, -peer lenders all across Canada. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to form circles. It is hard to, you know, have this vision and then carry it out. But it is so empowering and powerful when you do it successfully. 
you know, the women that have circles, they're thriving. They have, they do have their own community and it's beautiful to see that. How did your professional and perhaps personal life evolve to you being in this position? I think I'm going to start backwards. So kind of how Paro happened and then go back into my journey, if that's okay. I was at a point where I I was going back to work for somebody and had made that decision. And I had decided to not work for anybody um, when I was 19. I'm 29 now. So 10 years ago, I was like, I'm not going to work for anybody anymore. So to go back to deciding that I'm going to do this was a difficult decision. And as I was applying and interviewing, it was really figuring out what I wanted, you know, why I was doing this. And I, for the longest time, and when I say the longest time, it wasn't, it wasn't that long, but it felt like uh, a millennia. I didn't see that I was just doing it for a paycheck. You know, it was putting yourself back into this position of desperation. Um, And when I was being practical with myself, when I actually started creating awareness around it, I was like, you know what? A nine to five is really an eight to six and I can't do eight to six. Like I need to show up for my children. I have two young boys at home and um, they go to school at 8.50 is when their bus leaves. I cannot leave the house at eight to show up for a job and not know if they made it to school, to not know what, you know, they're having for lunch, to, to leave when they're waking up. That's not practical. And then to come home closer to their bedtime after dinner. I, I don't want to miss that time with them. Uh, cause as your children are in school, you really only have the mornings and the evenings, you know, the rush, rush to get out and the chaos of whatever happened at school. So that was interesting to still go to these interviews with that. Huh? These are the hours. This is how long I'll actually be working. Can I, can I actually do this? And I was lying to myself and saying, yeah, I can. And then I really sat down and I made a list and I encourage everybody to do this is to have your values. What are your values? What are your priorities in life? And what are things that you're willing to accept and not accept in the stage of life you're at? And it doesn't have to be work-related, just in life in general. And my priority was my family. It was my kids. You know, my priority was my freedom. A value that I have is to create impact in this world, you know, to actually change people's lives. I don't want to do an accounting job. My background is in finance. So I was looking at financial analyst positions and things like that. I don't want to be looking at numbers all day. I'm good at it, but I don't want to be doing that. So it was identifying these things. And the things that I was willing to accept and not accept were not what I was applying for. And um, I had applied for PARO um, in August of 2022. And um, I read the description. It sounded like a wonderful place to work at. I applied and then I never heard back. And that happens when you're applying. And um, I think about two months, two and a half months later, I had heard back from Paro um, and we were just getting ready to go on vacation, et cetera. And um, it was such a fast and easy transition because it just worked. It clicked. And I look back at my values, priorities, and things I was willing to accept and not accept. And Paro fit that description, you know, because again, their foundation is to meet you where you are, not to mold you into something you're not. And talking to Roz, the founder, she she understood that. She understands that sometimes women have to go pick up their kids because they got into a fight at recess, you know, or you have a dentist appointment and the nine to five doesn't do that for you. Um, so having flexibility in my day to day is so important for me. And um, 
I, I met Para when I was ready to, to work for somebody else. I met Para when I was ready to accept help, um, you know, uh, or a steady paycheck. I, I ran into Para when I was ready to fully commit myself into helping other women because I'd been doing it and, um, I wasn't able to fully commit that time or that energy to really guide them. It was sort of like a conversation here or there. Um, it wasn't a full on thing. So to be able to actually do what I love genuinely and to get paid to do it, I think that's, that's sort of the cliche quote, right? Um, do what you love and make money while doing it. It's true. So that's incredible. It's an incredible feeling. So now to backtrack. So my background is in finance. I went to school for psychology and social work. I changed my program and I did criminal law and paralegal work. I didn't really pursue a career in any of it. I did the interning. I did the work behind it, but it wasn't the right time. My dad is an accountant and I grew up with, um, you know, that financial background and attending meetings with him to spend time with my dad. And when I um, came back home from school, I um, sat with him and he's a He's a, he's a wild card in my life. He always has been. So he's good at being a dad and he's good at being a mentor. He said, you know, why don't, why don't you just come to a meeting and just see how this shows up for you in terms of being in the financial industry as an advisor? And I did. And you know what? It came naturally because I'd always been around it. And so we started working together where I was training to become a financial advisor. And that came with its own struggles. I was 20. I was a woman. I was uh, advising people that were in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, retiring, and they didn't like the idea of hearing about finance from a girl or what they considered a child. And um, regardless of what I was saying, if it was true and it really hit home, it was being put into a box. What do you really know about life when you're so young? So it was breaking those barriers down. It was building a portfolio. It was excelling every year. It was building new clients and relationships and moving at my own pace because it's a patriarch society being in the financial industry. It's run by men. You have to work at their pace. You have to prove yourself. And I remember being at um, a conference or a summit when I was really young and uh, everyone was so inspired by me because I'm in this room full of men, maybe one or two women that are you know, in their 40s and 50s, I'm talking about taking over the world in the financial industry. And, uh, you know, we were taught like the, the value or the goal of the company was to create financial freedom for their clients. And then we were asked our why, you know, like, why do we want to do this? You know, pay off our mortgage, pay off whatever, create flexibility in our lifestyle. And my answer was to create financial freedom for our clients. Like, why cannot, why can that not just be our own value and our own mission. And they're like, but you know, what about you? What about like it benefiting you? I'm like, it doesn't have to, why can't the business actually be based on what the company's about? Why are you teaching us to want for ourselves, like to have more income or to do whatever? Isn't that selfish? Are we going to base our work on how it benefits us as well before it benefits somebody else? Um, so that was an interesting perspective and I carried that. And now that I was doing this with my dad, he had the same vision because that's what he had always taught me. It's to put the client first, to put their needs first. And it was hard because there was rejection in that, you know, when you're getting coaching, working with companies and they want to see numbers and you're not providing that there's a limit or a boundary of how much they're willing to invest in you. 
So uh, my practice was created on coaching clients that I worked with on regardless if I'm your advisor or somebody else, you need to learn how to read a financial statement. You need to learn how to understand products, what they mean, the benefits and the, you know, the pros and cons of all that. And uh, whether you're working with a bank or a private advisor or, you know, a big firm or an online app, you need to know what all those things mean. So that was a part of my business. And then, of course, building a portfolio of people that had faith in me that wanted to hear what I was saying and to see that my age and my gender didn't really create a difference if uh, what I was saying made sense. And then I got married <laughs> at, uh, about a year later as I was establishing my business. And um, within, within the first year, we had our firstborn. So life was sort of on the fly for us. It was everything new and it's pretty wild and crazy. And um, in today's day and age, so I got married in 2016, I was surprised that I had an arranged marriage. I never thought I would have an arranged marriage because I'd been in relationships and so had my partner. And um, it was a foreign concept to us, but yet it happened. So that was a journey in itself. And it was a beautiful journey. And so when we found out that we were pregnant, it was figuring out or navigating you know, what do we want to be as parents? How do we want to show up for our kids? And at the time we were living in the GTA and we decided that we didn't want to do what our parents did. Our parents are both immigrants into the country and they were so hardworking. They still are till this day where they would do shift work. You know, one parent would be at home with the kids when we were there and the other one would be working. So it was never both of them, but that's what they had to do to make it work, to provide. And I was like, you know, oftentimes we're taught from our families that we work so hard so you can have a better life. And that's sort of the concept. And I'm like, you know, why don't we take that and actually embed that into our lifestyle? They work so hard so we could have a better life. Why do the exact same thing? Because that's what the GTA life is in a way, you know, not to categorize everybody, but it is a rat race. It's to keep providing, to have enough income to, to have more and more and more. We wanted to really be together and raise our child together and um, not have to do shift work. So we quit our jobs and uh, we moved to Hensel, the white bean capital of Canada, I'd like to point it out on the map, but a town of a thousand people or a village, I should say. And it was a big change. We had gone out to see the property in August and we moved out uh, end of September and we had to go back home and tell our parents, hey, we're, we're moving two and a half hours away from you guys with a two month baby. And we did it. And we bought a place that had a restaurant underneath and an apartment on top. It was built in the 1800s. It was a beautiful, magical place that used to be the Bank of Canada and then was transformed into a restaurant and had been a restaurant for over a hundred years, which is incredible. So there was a lot of character, a, a long journey with that. And we entered the restaurant industry without having any experience in cooking we cooked at home for each other, possibly at best, or maybe barbecued. So that was fun. We we were together. You know, I'd be in the front carrying a baby in a little satchel and uh, greeting you and helping you. And my husband would be in the back cooking. And we really found um, passion in what we did and love in what we did. And, um, you know, it's cliche to say your secret ingredient is love, but it was true. Sometimes if we had a client or a customer come in that maybe didn't have the best relationships with and didn't happen often or like their energy was not in, in, in with ours, their meal, unfortunately, never turned out good. And it was, uh, it was interesting to see that and to observe that. 
that we had to cook from a place of love. It couldn't have been rushed because it never turned out well. So our, our secret ingredient really was love. And we built um, a life there. A year later, we had another child. And um, I'm a firm believer of home births. Um, hospitals scare me. So both of my kids in today's day and age were born at home. But the first one, I think our families were shocked. They were just like, I'm sorry, you're going to do what? Like our grandmothers maybe birthed their first kids at home and the rest were in hospitals and you're going to give birth at home. I don't think so. But I did. It was really important to me to to be in my comfort zone. You can't control what's going to happen in your delivery. You can't control how the baby's going to come into this world. But if you can control your space and your energy, I think that's really important. And I was fortunate enough to do that both times. And, um, and thankfully, my midwives were able to come to me. And I think the beauty of that is in Hensel, if I were to have a baby, I would have to plan to either go to Stratford or London would be the closest hospitals, I believe, to deliver in. And my second one was born in the middle of a snowstorm. So for that to actually happen would have been not possible. And um, to have, you know, that control or that, that peace of mind that I don't have to be rushed to a hospital was so beautiful. And I mean, you can't control that. You can have home births and still end up in a hospital. But um, I think it's a space and energy you enter that that contract with, really. So that was a new chapter of our lives. We were ready to expand. And um, we, we bought another restaurant, um, or a business, I should say, in Grand Bend, which is a busy little tourist town. And it was beautiful. It was a whole new adventure. We, our restaurant in Hensel was about 35 seats at best 40 and we were taking on something that had over 200 seats so it was a whole new adventure a whole new journey um, having a bar running that what that looked like and we're very I think homey people like we're not corporate if that makes sense you know we're very personable people so we ran our business like a family and we learned a lot, you know, first year I couldn't be there. It was a, it was a change of environment because I had two children that I was like, I can't carry both of them with me and serve people. So my husband carried a lot of that workload and it was a good understanding between us. Like, you know, I hold down the fort at home and you're holding down the fort in our growth. So he did a lot of learning on his own when it came to running a bar or something we've never done before or how to manage it. And to run a kitchen and to cook and mass produce when we've never done something like that. It was a journey. It was a learning curve. We made a lot of mistakes. We, we learned a lot. We grew a lot. We ran the business for about three years, give or take. And it was beautiful. We had created something that had such a good energy and vibe. We were different in ourselves. We weren't trying to outdo the other bars or, you know, local clubs or anything like that. We were just our own you know, and we attracted our own kind of people. And that was a lot of fun. COVID closed down our Hensel restaurant. In a village of a thousand people, you can only have so many customers. And it was just realizing on how different those two areas were, even though they're 25 minutes apart. In Hensel, we were struggling to, to run afloat, maybe due to the population or the age group, you know, they were scared naturally. And in Grand Bend, it being a seasonal business, um, people were flooding in during COVID because it was one of the few beaches that was actually open. Wasaga was closed, Pebble Beach, you know, things like that. They were closed. So um, Grand Bend was open and it was, we needed staff, we needed help. Um, so our last year of business, um, I was actually at the bar and working and it was a different journey for the both of us to be there all the time around the clock. And um, 
at the end of the season, we had decided that that was, you know, maybe another season we'll go through. But that was a lot. We learned a lot that season. We went through a lot of struggles and had our own awarenesses, I would say, around that. And um, we went into a new chapter of our lives. We bought our first house. We decided to change locations. And um, we wanted to now rebuild our life or figure out this next chapter. I decided to start another business in Grand Bend on the main strip. And um, I had named it the general store. And my idea was to recreate what a general store used to be. I think they've turned into convenience stores over time, though general stores back in the day were actually just local product and a community hub where you could meet you, your doctor or your, you know, uh, your nurse and just all the local uh, members of the community and um, have conversations with them. You knew where the product was coming from. You could ask for something and uh, the owner of the business could order it in for you. It was a very like, I know, I know who's in my community sort of place was what a general store used to be. So the idea was to create that in a modern way. The product in store was all local artisans or, um, you know, sort of of the area or extended areas. And um, a lot of them were, were women, some were men. And it was just beautiful to to meet these women and men and to see what they had created, to believe in yourself, to create a product, to be like, yeah, this is a need. And it started with meeting people at farmer's markets, um, falling in love with the product and be like, how do I get this again? Like, I'm at this farmer's market and they're not here. What do I do? How do you find contact? So I wanted to create a storefront because and if you have a candle business, um, how many candles do you have to sell to make your rent and then profit? You know, and can you actually do that? So it's not feasible for a lot of these small artisans to have a brick and mortar store. So I wanted to create a store that was ours. It wasn't mine. It was genuinely ours. And to also have a community hub. And I have an obsession with maybe antique furniture or vintage furniture and stuff like that too. So I had this vision of not having like racks and shelves in, in the store. I wanted furniture, beautiful furniture that had character and a story behind it. I wanted to know where it came from if I could or, um, you know, whose it was and display the product on, on, on this furniture. So when people came in, there was a very homey vibe and it was so beautiful to hear when people came in, Hey, that was in my grandma's house or, you know, I grew up in this generation where we had this kind of pottery. It's so cool to see it being reused. So it was a beautiful community that way. But the struggles of business, you know, you can live in this fairy tale world. The struggles of business, of um, doing business in a rural community is population. You know, it's demand. It's, um, this is my cost of operating. I'm not making this. How do I make it survive? So that was a very different challenge because this was a solo project. This was a baby that needed my attention. And I started off in December. And if you know Grand Bend, Grand Bend has dust bunnies <laughs> in October. And though it's growing, though it's becoming a more year-round community, I think that will still take time. And it was just um, continuous community support, you know, support from artisans and um, my partner on, okay, we got this. We just have to make it summer. And um, unfortunately, it didn't. And that's where, you know, I, me and my partner, we had to sit down and be like, hey, is what we're putting in, are we just here because of our ego? Is it, you know, we've put in this much money and we're not willing to lose it, even though it's already gone, how much more are we going to put in? So that was my own entrepreneurship journeys to really realize, like, is this worth it or is it not? And we finally, we finally put the flag down and said, you know what, I'd rather 
cut ties right now because what worked for us in the past, the way we were able to work, you know, around the clock was we were really passionate about what we were doing. And it there was an exchange of energy, like our peace was productive. So it worked. But this was eating into our, our peace. Even though there was so much passion behind it, it wasn't coming from a place of peace. And so we had an amazing summer. For the first time, we were able to enjoy our home. And we were able to uh, spend time with our family, attend weddings, and catch up on the things that we had missed. We spent Canada Day together and not at a bar trying to run 18-hour shifts, maybe 20-hour shifts. We, we couldn't believe that this is the other side of Canada Day. And we actually went to bed early. We're like, huh, we're not up until three in the morning. What is this life? Like, um, so it was a whole new journey, um, leaving the restaurant industry and leaving this entrepreneur world in a way, temporarily, I don't think it'd be a permanent thing, but, um, transitioning into let's just figure out what we want to do next. And we were so fortunate to have the time and space to really figure out and sit with ourselves and be like, what are we going to do? Like, what's the next journey for us? And we've never done that in our time together. It's always been one thing after another. It's always been one challenge after another. It's always been figuring it out as we go. We've never really slowed down and stopped. So we were actually able to do that, which was nice. And for me, I was like, you know what? Temporarily, I we I do need to go back to work. I need to work for somebody to really figure out our finances, eh? You know, be able to provide for this new house that we decided to buy <laughs> and, uh, you know, figure out that journey of our life. And um, really realign my values on my priorities, um, my values, things I'm willing to accept, things I'm not willing to accept. And Paro came into my life at the right time. Wow. What an incredible journey. And, and so I'm going to bring it back around to now you are supporting other women entrepreneurs having come through all of that, the good, the bad, and the ugly of you know, entrepreneurship, even though you never use that word, sometimes it can be a, a real struggle and really challenging. It can be challenging on yourself, on your relationship, your family, your ties, your peace, like you said. So what advice do you have for women in a rural community who are looking at an idea and um, thinking, Hmm, I'm listening to her story and it sounds really hard. What advice would you give them? I would say first, do your research. You know, it's easy. We're, again, we act out of emotion. We're very emotional creatures, or most of us are. And um, we can hop on this bandwagon without really analyzing everything. So do your research and really see what that looks like. Really see, do your research in your target market. We often see ideas that work in the GTA or bigger cities and they don't work in the rural community. Doesn't mean they don't have the potential, but they sometimes they just don't. And see, do your market research, do your target market research, do your time and support research. You know, one thing if I could go back was we we didn't have a plan. We just hopped in and this was the next journey. We figured it out along the way. But do time and support research. How much time is this going to take? You know, um, who's going to back me up? What other responsibilities do I have? If your days already, your 24 hours are already packed, how are you going to add an entire new project into your life? You know, so figure all of that out, mind map, write, write it down, see what it looks like, because in our mind, we're great at filing things away 
and suppressing them and hiding reality. Um, but when you see it out in front of you, it can be very eye-opening and it can be very beautiful. You can have a really beautiful idea that needs to come to life because you're serving you're serving a need. There's so many needs in rural communities that need to be addressed. So your business could be one of those things. But proper planning, proper education, proper um, research, understanding your risk levels, understanding the finance component is so important. Understanding what's going to happen if you fail, like what's your exit strategy, and uh, what happens if you blow up and you know, you're so successful. People don't think that success is a risk, but it is. And people struggle with it. Like what, how do you keep up with success? So do your research would be my first piece of advice. Um, My second piece of advice is come up with your worst case scenario. Be real with yourself. We're not often real. We don't like to look at reality as it is. So be real with yourself. What's your worst case scenario? If this were to go south, in every direction, what are you willing to handle? How much are you willing to lose? How much are you willing to give up? How much of your time, your personal life, your freedom are you willing to give up? And if you can accept your worst case scenario, then move on. And if you can't, you know, don't do it. Save yourself that trauma. You know, and you're like, oh, well, what about the best case? The best case can only come if you can handle the worst. Regardless of your journey, you know, if you decide to take no other piece of advice, one thing that always stuck with me my entire life, and it's something my dad embedded in me when I was really young, and it's been just continuous, there's really strong people in this world. You can't be the strongest. You can't have the most muscles in a room. You can be mentally strong. If you're mentally strong, nobody can tear you down. You have to have the mental strength to get through things in life. So build yourself up to be the mental, to be the strongest person mentally in the room, in in the community, and all of that, because you are going to face different categories of discrimination. And you are going to face challenges along the way, but it's how you handle them and that will guide your journey and how you end up on top or at the bottom. And everything is a learning experience. Some are really, really expensive, and some are extremely beautiful, and some are just what they are. But You have to learn from them. And that only happens if you have the mental strength to restructure your mindset and to look at it as an opportunity or as a failure or as a lesson. So those would be, you know, long, long story short, my three pieces of advice. Do your research, you know, do your worst case scenario planning and be mentally the strongest person you know. That sounds like fantastic advice. And and I think that that's a wonderful place to leave it for today. Thank you so much, Gitanjali. It's always a pleasure to be in your presence. You're very inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so honored and um, grateful for this opportunity, Shana. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are... Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, 
Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 